Hello ladies and gentlemen, my name is Andy and this is UFOs and Other Paranormal Stuff. First of all, thank you very much for listening to the special that I put out earlier in the week, the breaking news about possible UFO sighting around the Bromley area, but also apparently around other parts of the UK. It was interesting to hear and see what other people's thoughts of the object was and what it might have been. It's very interesting that there seems to be a lot of unidentifiable to me at least unidentifiable things flying around in the sky nowadays a lot more than there was before I'm sure also a quick shout out to Louise Paul and Kelly thank you very much for your emails they are very welcome indeed I do read every single one of them there is quite a few to get through so yep I do read every single one of them Uh, like I said if you want to send me an email about the show about the content about anything about any ideas that you might have for the show then please do it's ufos and other paranormal stuff at gmail.com I'd also like to thank those people who have donated to the show via the buymeacoffee.com link Uh, if you do wish to donate to the show I would be very very grateful I will put a link in the episode description Also, don't forget to like and share the episode and also a review as well. It really does help to expose the show to more people, but also it helps us and it helps me understand where the show is going, where it's being listened to and all that kind of thing. We also have a giveaway going on at the moment, uh, but I'll say more about that later on in the show. So what are we going to talk about in this show? The first subject is the Bilderberg Group. You have more than likely heard of the Bilderberg Group. I can't even say it. Let me put my teeth back in. Yes, the the Bilderberg Group. First of all, who are the Bilderberg Group? Are they run by a race of humanoid creatures descended from lizards? No, of course not. According to Wikipedia, the Bilderberg Group, or Bilderberg Meeting as it is officially known, was established in 1954 to foster dialogue between Europe and North America. Apparently their agenda, originally to prevent another world war from taking place, is now defined as bolstering a consensus around free market Western capitalism and its interests around the world. Attendees are allowed to use information gained at the meetings but are not allowed to say who gave them that information. Apparently this is to encourage debate while maintaining privacy. Those on the political left and right are both united in some conspiracy theories that the Bilderberg Group is in fact a world government. While it is not a theory that I sign up to, it is worthy of some debate in itself. Is the Bilderberg Group really a secret world government? As already stated, it was founded to foster dialogue between Europe and North America and to prevent another world war from starting up. But didn't we already have organisations in place for the elected, dubiously elected, officials to attend and talk? The United Nations springs to mind. And haven't organisations been created since? 
The Council of Europe, founded in 1947, for example, now popularly known as the European Union, the political and economical union of 27 countries located in Europe, but as friendly dealings with most of the rest of the world, let's not get into that on this podcast. And how about the G20 too? There are more, of course. So what exactly is the point of the Bilderberg Group still meeting in secret if we already have these other organisations in place that are doing the job on a more open level? Well, let's just have a look at who they have attending their meetings, shall we? Royalty. They have royalty. Prince Charles and Prince Philip from the UK have attended. Royals from Belgium, Netherlands, Norway and Spain still do attend. The list of political leaders who have attended and still are attending is long and includes those from Austria, Belgium, Canada, China, Czech, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, Greece, Iceland, Ireland, Italy, Japan, Netherlands, Norway, Poland, Portugal, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, Turkey, UK, USA and also the European Union. But, and some may say strangely, There is also a list of military involvement in the meetings from just Canada, Netherlands, UK and the USA. Financial institutions from all over the world are represented there, as are major corporations, academics, oh, and a few members of the international media, but they are not allowed to report much, if anything at all. Thing is, isn't it a bit odd that all of these elected representatives are in meetings together and yet seemingly the results of their meetings we are not allowed to know anything about. Why would they need to be so secretive? Isn't an accident that many African, South American and Asian countries are not part of the group? Why do they need to meet with the Bilderberg Group as well as other meetings? What do they have to hide? Over the years, participants have included US presidents, including George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, UK Prime Ministers Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair, German Chancellors Angela Merkel and Helmut Schmidt, Bill Gates of Microsoft and Jeff Bezos of Amazon, to name a few. The Bilderberg Group creates a situation where the global power elite rub shoulders with each other while we, the population of the globe, have no idea what they are talking about. No details will emerge of the meetings and so that void is filled with the conspiracy theorists saying whatever they want. They will never be contradicted by the group. Milton William Cooper, an American radio broadcaster and author, warned of multiple global conspiracies involving the Bilderberg group. He stated that the Illuminati, was being controlled by the Bilderberg Group and that the group's ultimate goal was to establish a new world order. He involves Majestic 12, the Jason Advisory Group, the Masons, all in his thoughts that the Illuminati conspired with extraterrestrials to take over the world. Maybe that's a bit too far for me, but what do you think? Please let me know. Right-wing extremists think that the Bilderberg Group has been laying foundations for the imposition of the former Soviet Union. 
but those on the left see it as more of an attempt by transnational corporations and financial institutions to direct the process of globalization to their own advantage. The left may have a point considering the amount of financial institutions and corporations that are linked with the group. The right may also have a point too, considering that politically, anyway, no former member state of the Soviet Union is involved with the Bilderberg Group. Another popular theory lending its support to the Bilderberg Group being a world government is the theory that they are some sort of kingmaker, so to speak. They invite up-and-coming politicians to attend. Indeed, Bill Clinton attended when he was just the governor of Arkansas, and Tony Blair was invited to attend in 1993, one year before he became the leader of the Labour Party in Britain, and four years before he became the Prime Minister. It is thought that if these up-and-coming politicians meet the requirements of the Bilderberg Group, the group will then support them financially and through the media on their rise to power. It has been said that the Bilderberg Group had dealings with Brexit too. One person, lizard man and former Coventry City goalkeeper David Icke, said that he thinks the Bilderberg Group will be lobbying hard against Brexit. A Huffington Post article from June 2016 says the Bilderberg Group has been nurturing the EU to life since the 1950s and now see the creation under dire threat. For the Bilderberg Group, the idea that there might be any kind of pushback against globalisation is an horrific one. I suspect we'll glimpse some frowning faces behind the tinted glass as the limousines start rolling up on Thursday. David Icke, by the way, was famously linked with the Illuminati back in the 80s and 90s, but he was also a lever in the Brexit vote, as was Philip Holoborn and Chris Grayling, both Tory party MPs at the time, 2016. Holoborn believes that the group is seeking to influence the referendum and said, It is quite right that Her Majesty, our Sovereign, should have no views on important issues such as the EU referendum. How can it be in any way acceptable for members of Her Majesty's Government from the Prime Minister downwards to encourage foreign heads of state to comment on European Union referendum? Is this not demonstrative of the fact that the International Bilderberg Group is ganging up against the British people, he said? Chris Grayling warned foreign leaders not to get involved. They got their wish on the 23rd of June 2016 when Britain decided to leave the European Union after more than 40 years at the heart of it. In the years since, the referendum result was finally enacted on the 31st of January 2020. It has seen businesses leave and Britain's reputation slump quite a bit. Many believe that the group were in fact wanting Britain to leave so that they could get on and grow the European Union without the hindrance that Britain always gives it. But like I said, we will talk about that no more on this podcast. Conspiracy theories about the Bilderberg Group being a secret world government have deflected attention away from genuine concerns linked with meetings of a secret nature. Wealthy industrialists and financial people are getting unhindered access to off-the-record meetings with the most powerful people in the world who may indeed be enacting regulations and laws 
governing their business activities. They have the ability to make contacts with these powerful people and then coerce them into doing whatever they want for them. That sounds like corruption, doesn't it? But corruption can't possibly exist in democratic countries, can it? It can if you don't know that it already is. Have you done your Christmas shopping yet? Are you still looking for that special something for that special someone? That extra ingredient for a great Christmas dinner, party or drink? Are you looking for the thing that will make Christmas even better this year? If so, then look no further than Great Danes UK. Great Danes UK has everything you need to make Christmas go with a Scandinavian bang. Cozy and comfortable footwear. George Jensen designed jewellery. Eva Solo designed homeware. Candles, cups, mugs, clocks, scarves, lights, gadgets, pet accessories, bags, bimble and bumble, toys, eyewear, Christmas decorations, everything you could ever want and with an unmatched beautiful Danish design. Don't forget the food and drink, salty chocolate licorice, Tom's turtle advent calendar, the vintage food grocery box, remoulade, glob mix and much more. And why not wash it all down with a nice Allborg Jubileum Aquavit, Gammeldank Stram, Blomberg Mulled Wine, Tuborg Classic and Gold Beer, Carlsberg Black Gold Beer and a soft drink for the kids. For worldwide deliveries, visit the website greatdanes.uk and get your order in today. There's also Lego of course. Great Danes, gr8danes.uk Always drink responsibly. For T's and C's, please visit the website. Next thing I want to talk about on this episode, ladies and gentlemen, is the Soviet involvement in the Manhattan Project. Tsar bomber, the largest nuclear bomb ever, was detonated on the 30th of October 1961 on Severny Island in the Arctic Ocean. Dropped from a Tupolev 95V and detonated at a height of 4,000 feet, this huge bomb released 58 megatons of devastation and put the USSR firmly on the nuclear map. The test was meant to be secret, but it was so large that the blast wave went around the globe three times and the flare was seen in Norway. Given that this took place during the height of the Cold War, it increased tensions to a height never seen before. People and governments around the world were frightened that a nuclear war was going to break out imminently. But how did the Soviets get information on nuclear weapons to the point that they could create the Tsar bomber relatively quickly? Well, for that we would need to look at something known as the development of substitute materials in the United States. First of all, what was the development for substitute materials? Starting as early as 1938, the DSM was a research and development undertaking during World War II that produced the first nuclear weapons. Led by the United States, with the support from the UK and Canada, the project that came to be more popularly known as the Manhattan Project was first of all charged with intelligence gathering from the German nuclear weapons project through Operation Alsos. The German scientist Otto Hahn 
and Fritz Straussmann had by accident discovered nuclear fission. And when they got to hear about this, Leo Szilard and Albert Einstein, heard of him before, sent a letter to the United States President Roosevelt warning him that Adolf Hitler's Germany might try and build an atomic bomb. President Franklin Roosevelt decided to form the Uranium Committee, a group of top military and scientific experts to determine if nuclear chain reaction was actually feasible. Research was slow to begin with. That was until the spring of 1941, when Britain's version of the Uranium Committee, the MAUD Committee, issued a report that an atomic bomb was possible and urged cooperation with the United States. The United States reorganised its atomic research and it progressed to development. The nuclear arms race with Nazi Germany had begun. Because of the huge importance of the Manhattan Project, security had to be as tight as it could possibly be. And to an extent, it worked. The project was not infiltrated by enemies of the United States. It was in fact infiltrated by United States allies at the time, the Soviet Union. This was during World War II, remember, and the Soviets had turned against Nazi Germany during the course of that war. Ever heard the phrase, my enemy's enemy is my friend? Well, that's what the Allies took the USSR to be back then. They needed all the help they could get in those dark days of World War II. That didn't mean that the Manhattan Project information was to be given away to anyone though, friend or not. The United States Army Signal Intelligence Service's own project, named the Venona Project, soon detected Soviet espionage in the Manhattan Project. But it took three years for cryptanalysts to decipher the Soviet communications. The breakthrough came after World War II in 1946, when tensions were beginning to rise between the former allies USA and USSR, where it was discovered that some of the one-time keypads had been reused by the Soviets, therefore allowing decryption of a small part of their communications. In cryptography, a one-time keypad is an encryption technique that cannot be cracked, but requires the use of single-use pre-shared key that is no smaller than the message being sent. In this technique, a plain text is paired with a random secret key, also referred to as a one-time pad. Then each bit, of, each bit or each character of the plain text is encrypted by combining it with the corresponding bit or character from the pad using modular addition. The more these pads are used, the easier it is for other agencies to crack the codes, hence why they are called one-time keypads. Cryptologist Meredith Gardner first broke the Soviet codes in December of that year and what she had discovered shocked the American officials. The Soviets, those one-time enemies of my enemy, had somehow managed to penetrate almost every branch of the United States government and had spies in very important positions within the State Department, Department of the Treasury, the Office of Strategic Services, and yes, even the White House itself. 
Over the following years, the United States Army and the FBI worked together to determine the identities of the Soviet spies, referred to in the decrypted cables by cryptonyms or secret code names. By 1950, Harry Dexter White, high-ranking Treasury Department official, Lachlan Curry, a former White House advisor, and OSS Division Head Morris Halperin had been identified. Also identified was Theodore Hall, who was only 18 when recruited into the Manhattan Project. Hall visited the offices of the Communist Party of America in New York where he met with Sergei Kurnikov, a writer for a Soviet newspaper. Hall passed Kurnikov a paper on scientists who worked at Los Alamos and basic science behind the implosion bomb. Hall kept passing information to the USSR after the war had ended, including information about the development of the hydrogen bomb. Hall admitted in 1997 that he felt an American monopoly on nuclear weapons was perilous and that atomic information should be shared among countries. Other Soviet spies were also discovered working at Los Alamos, including Manhattan-born David Greenglass. David Greenglass, whose sister Ethel was married to a Julius Rosenberg, was arrested in June 1950. Almost as soon as he was arrested, he implicated his brother-in-law, Julius, but explicitly denied Ethel's involvement when he testified before a grand jury in August of that year. Yet the next year he changed his testimony, claiming now that Ethel had written up his notes. He then testified against his sister and her husband in court as part of an immunity agreement. That agreement allowed his wife, Ruth, to stay with her two sons. A Venona Project intercept from 1944 revealed the recruitment of Ruth Greengrass, but made no mention of Ethel Rosenberg. David Greengrass went on to say, My wife is more important to me than my sister. Ruth Greengrass was never charged. Possibly the two most famous cases to be implicated in the whole affair was Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Both born in Manhattan in New York, they were convicted of providing top-secret information about radar, sonar, jet propulsion engines and extremely valuable nuclear weapons designs at a time when the United States was the only country in the world to have nuclear weapons. In his controversial testimony against the Rosenbergs at their trial, David Greenglass reported that his sister Ethel had typed the notes her husband passed to the Soviet Union on the American bomb project. Ethel was executed shortly after her husband at Sing Sing on June 19, 1953. Six decades later, the execution of the Rosenbergs remains a controversial subject, Recent declassified documents have reignited debate over Ethel's alleged role in the Soviet spy ring. It was the testimony of David Greenglass in the 1951 trial which implicated Ethel, but before a secret grand jury in 1950, Greenglass affirmed, I said before and I say it again, honestly, this is a fact. I never spoke to my sister about this at all. 
This testimony was not made available to the defence lawyers at the Rosenbergs' trial. In September 1949, information gathered by the Venona Project indicated to GCHQ in London that Karl Fuchs, a German refugee who had arrived in Britain back in 1933, was indeed a spy. British intelligence services were understandably wary of indicating their source of their information. The Soviets had broken off contact with Fuchs in February of 1949 and there is evidence to suggest that the infamous double agent Kim Philby tipped off Karl Fuchs about his being detected. In October that year, Fuchs told Henry Arnold, the head of security at Harwell, that his father, Emil Fuchs, had been given a chair at the University of Leipzig. The University of Leipzig was in the Soviet-controlled zone of Germany, soon to become East Germany. According to Frank Close's book, Trinity, MI5 suspected Fuchs for over two years and credits the decryptors at GCHQ for supplying clear proof of his guilt and not the crack American team that is normally given all the credit. In January 1950, Fuchs voluntarily confessed that he was a spy. A few days later, he made a statement which was more technical in its content to Michael Perrin, the deputy controller of atomic energy within the Ministry of Supply. He told his interrogators that the NKGB had recruited an agent in California and that the agent had informed the USSR about electromagnetic separation research of uranium-235 in the early 1940s. Fuchs' statement implicated Harry Gold, who was a key witness in the trial of David Greenglass. The strange thing is that none of those involved in the spy ring were actually Soviet. They were all allies, or indeed Americans. But even then, considering the ultra-tight security involved in the project, how did they manage to infiltrate it? Were they helped? Apparently, all that David Greenglass, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg needed to do was to hide their communist links from their Manhattan Project recruiters, which all sounds a little bit too easy to me. It is thought that the information that they all passed on to the USSR was enough to make sure that the Soviets could keep up their side of the nuclear arms race, but also to keep the Cold War going, until it eventually ended in 1991, also ending the USSR and the Soviet control over half of the world. Their information helped the Soviets make nuclear missiles that were to be placed on the island of Cuba in 1962, an event which brought the world the closest that it has ever been to nuclear annihilation. So what do you think about that, ladies and gentlemen? Do you think that the information passed on from the spy ring was really that helpful to the USSR? Or do you think that the USSR was already quite a few steps ahead and the Americans were just trying to keep up? It's all very, very secretive, isn't it? Now, ladies and gentlemen, I said at the top of the episode that we are running a little giveaway. 
The prizes in the giveaway are the book Trinity by Jacques Villay and Inside Wright Patterson by Donald Schmidt. All you have to do to be in with a chance of winning these books, ladies and gentlemen, is to like, share, write a review on Apple iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcasts from and just take a photograph of it so I know some of them don't come through to me, the reviews, and email it to me at UFOs and other paranormal stuff at gmail.com. The best and most honest review will win the prizes. Also, ladies and gentlemen, if you like what I do here at UFOs and other paranormal stuff, please feel free to visit buymeacoffee.com and donate to the show. Every little pound or penny or cent or whatever it is you use is massively, massively appreciated. It really, really is. And every bit of money that is donated goes back into the show. Thanks to some donations already, I've been able to buy myself a brand new microphone, which hopefully does a better job than the old one did. Don't forget also, ladies and gentlemen, to visit greatdanes.uk for your last minute Christmas shopping or New Year's shopping. If you're just looking for that extra little bit for a New Year Christmas party or something, it's greatdanes.uk. That's G-R-8-D-A-N-E-S dot U-K. Next up on this episode, the Roger Casement Diaries. Did British intelligence forge them? 3rd of August 1916. The body of Sir Roger Casement hangs from the gallows inside Pentonville Prison in London, England. But why was he there? Why had he, this man who had worked for the British Foreign Office, been executed by the British? Was everything as it should have been, or was there some kind of conspiracy that ended in this man, who was also in the Irish Volunteers, losing his life at the request of the British government? All very interesting questions, which we will get into a little bit later, but first of all, who was Roger Casement? Roger Casement was born in Dublin in 1864 and lived at Doyle's Cottage, which sadly is no longer there. Casement's father, also called Roger, was a captain in the King's Own Regiment of Dragoons. You need to know that back in those days, Ireland was a part of the British Empire and was ruled from London. Casement had lived in England as well as Wales too when he was a child. He was secretly baptised as a Roman Catholic while in Wales. They lived in poverty whilst in England. His mother died when he was nine years old. Soon after, his father took him back to Ireland to live near relatives. Sadly though, his father died too when Casement was only 13 years old, leaving him dependent on the charity of relatives. Roger Casement worked in the Congo for Henry Morton Stanley as well as the African International Association. The AIA was basically a front for King Leopold II of Belgium to take over what became the Congo Free State. Casement, whilst there, uncovered the terrible conditions that he found in the Congo as part of an official investigation for the British government. 
King Leopold had exploited the Congo's natural resources as a private entrepreneur, not as the Belgian king. The Congo was owned personally by King Leopold. He used violence against the people. His private force decimated many villages and abused their people in order to increase productivity. The report that Roger Casement wrote provoked controversy. One of the results was that the Congo Reform Association was founded with Casement's support and demanded action to relieve the situation for the Congolese people. Other European nations followed suit and on the 15th of November 1908 the Parliament of Belgium took over the Congo Free State from King Leopold and administered it from then on as Belgian Congo. Later on, Casement went to the Putumayo district of Peru and again was witness to terrible treatment of the Peruvian Indians. They had been forced into unpaid labour by staff of the PAC, the Peruvian Amazon Company, who asserted absolute power over them and starved them nearly to death. They were severely abused and the women and girls raped by managers and overseers. Branding and casual murder was also found by casement to have happened to Barbadians in the region too. When that report was published, there was absolute public outrage in Britain over the abuses. Casement said of the pillories, Men, women and children were confined in them for days, weeks and often months. Whole families were imprisoned, fathers mothers and children. Many cases were reported of parents dying thus either from starvation or from the wounds caused by flogging while their offspring were attached alongside them to watch in the misery themselves the dying agonies of their parents. So why was it that only five years later Roger Casement who went around the world and investigated these atrocities reported them to the outside world and got countries to change the way that they worked in those countries, was hanged by the British government at Pentonville Prison. Well, that is partly because, for all the good that Roger Casement was doing for the British, Casement was also a member of the Gaelic League, an organisation established in Ireland in 1893 to preserve and revive the spoken literary use of the Irish language. One of the League's goals was to de-Anglicise Ireland. Of course, this would not have been liked at all by the British, who controlled Ireland at the time. Interesting, though, was that Casement later joined the IPP, the Irish Parliamentary Party, to lobby for his work in the Congo. But unlike many in the IPP, he did not support Home Rule. Casement thought that the British House of Lords would veto such efforts. He instead became impressed by a newer party called Sinn Féin, which called for an independent island through non-violent strikes and boycotts. Casement retired from the British Consul in 1913 and helped the Irish Volunteers, a group formed in response to the formation of the Ulster Volunteers a year earlier. The Irish Volunteers' aim was to secure and maintain the rights and liberties common to the whole people of Ireland. 
Of course, the British were completely against Sinn Féin and the Irish volunteers' wish for a free island. In November 1914, during World War I, Roger Casement was in Germany. He spent most of his time there recruiting for the Irish Brigade. His plan was that they would be trained to fight against Britain in the cause for Irish independence. American ambassador to Germany, James W. Gerrard, mentioned the effort in his memoir, Four Years in Germany. He said, The Germans collected all the soldier prisoners of Irish nationality in one camp at Limburg, not far from Frankfurt. Their efforts were made to induce them to join the German army. The men were well treated and were often visited by Sir Roger Casement, who, working with German authorities, tried to get these Irishmen to desert their flag and join the Germans. A few weaklings were persuaded by Sir Roger, who finally discontinued his visits after obtaining about 30 recruits, because the remaining Irishmen chased him out of the camp. They feared for their lives if they had anything to do with the Irish Brigade or the Irish Volunteers. They would have been tried and hung for treason back in London after the war. Even though Roger Casement was all for Irish independence, he did not know that one of the biggest events in Irish history was being planned until that plan was fully developed. That event was to be known as the Easter Rising. Germany offered the Irish 20,000 1891 rifles, 10 machine guns and accompanying ammunition to be shipped to Ireland to help their effort to free Ireland from British rule. It is thought that the instructions issued by Padre Pierce that the arms were under no circumstances to land in Ireland before Easter Sunday had been misunderstood and the arms were indeed put onto a ship and sent to Ireland. The weapons never reached Ireland, as the Royal Navy intercepted the transport ship that was carrying them. The British intercepted German communications and suspected that arms would land in Ireland, but they did not know the exact location. Roger Casement, who had travelled back to Ireland in April 1916 on a German U-boat to try to get leaders there to postpone the rising, was discovered by a sergeant of the Royal Irish Constabulary at McKenna's Fort, near to where the German U-boat had landed him. He was ill, suffering from malaria, which he had had since his trips to the Congo. Casement was arrested on charges of high treason, sabotage, espionage against the Crown. The Easter Rising went ahead as planned beginning in Dublin on Monday and lasting five days before the British used overwhelming force to stop it. The heavy-handed response by the British included executing 14 of the Rising's leaders after a secret court-martial. This, maybe more than the Rising itself, caused a huge increase in support in Ireland and beyond for the Republicans' cause of establishing a free and independent Ireland. Roger Casement was the last of the men involved in the Rising to face a trial, and the release of excerpts of his diaries can be regarded as a reaction to the widespread public outrage at the treatment of the men who had been already executed. 
The Black Diaries, as they were later named, contained graphic details of homosexual encounters between casement and young men, some of whom he paid for their services. It appeared to be a calculated effort by the British establishment to discredit him, ahead of the expected guilty verdict, in an attempt to sway public opinion against him and reduce calls for clemency in the likely event of a death penalty being imposed. At that time, homosexuality was illegal in Britain and was the subject of particular disapproval among Catholic people in Ireland, from whose communities a lot of Irish Republicans hailed. As well as being an attempt to discredit Roger Casement, the British authorities may also have been trying to distract attention away from the situation in Ireland by focusing instead on a man who had undoubtedly committed treason by consorting with the enemy at a time of war. After the diary's contents were made public, Casement's family and friends disputed the accusations that he was homosexual, though, as it was illegal, it was not unusual at the time for homosexual men to lead double lives in which their true sexuality remained hidden. Very soon there were accusations that MI5, as well as other British secret services, had forged the diaries shortly after the first entries had been leaked, and they have continued ever since, particularly among those members of the Irish Republican community who regard Roger Casement as a hero of the struggle for Irish independence and also a martyr to that cause. The diaries became declassified in 1959 when the public were then able to examine them. A forensic examination undertaken in 2002 came to the conclusion that the diaries were in fact real based on a handwriting comparison with other writings written by Roger Casement. But those findings have since been disputed. Opinion among Irish and British remains divided even in 2021. There can be little doubt that the British government used the diaries, whether they were real or fake, as a means of ensuring that Roger Casement would face the death penalty, and also that his execution would not lead to an increase in support for the Republican cause. Since 1916, attitudes towards homosexuality have slowly changed in Ireland. So much so, in fact, that in 2015 a referendum was held in Ireland to change the law, or not, on same-sex marriage. The yes vote won by 62%. Roger Casement has come to be seen not only as a hero of Irish independence movement, but as a symbol of the struggle to achieve equal rights for all members of Irish society, whatever their religion or whatever their sexuality. But like I said, opinions are still divided on whether the British Secret Services did forge the, um, the diaries of Roger Casement. What do you think about that, ladies and gentlemen? It seems a bit um, convenient to me. That is all for today's episode. Like I said before, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to donate to help this show go further and go get a little bit better and improve in every single way, please do. Please do go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash UFOs and make a nice little donation there or a big donation. I don't mind. As always, any communications, any stories that you have for me, please do send them to UFOs and other paranormal stuff at gmail.com. 
I will always do my very, very best to get back to you. However, sometimes emails do end up in my spam account. So if you could put in the uh, subject field, if you could put there UFOs and other paranormal stuff, that would be a great help. Thank you very much. And until next time, ladies and gentlemen, take care of yourself, stay safe, and speak to you next time. Bye-bye. Oh, just before I go, don't forget about the giveaway. You could win Trinity by Jacques Vallée and Inside Wright Patterson by Donald Schmidt. All you need to do is rate the podcast and write a review on whichever uh, podcast provider you use or you get your podcast from and send an image of that to me to UFOs and other paranormal stuff at gmail.com. Also, ladies and gentlemen, don't forget to visit the Facebook group and the Instagram and the uh, Twitter pages and share the podcast with everybody you know, just so everybody has a chance to hear this wonderful podcast. Have you done your Christmas shopping yet? Are you still looking for that special something for that special someone? That extra ingredient for a great Christmas dinner, party or drink? Are you looking for the thing that will make Christmas even better this year? If so, then look no further than Great Danes UK. Great Danes UK has everything you need to make Christmas go with a Scandinavian bang. Cozy and comfortable footwear. George Jensen designed jewellery. Eva Solo designed homeware. Candles, cups, mugs, clocks, scarves, lights, gadgets, pet accessories, bags, bimble and bumble, toys, eyewear, Christmas decorations, everything you could ever want and with an unmatched beautiful Danish design. Don't forget the food and drink, salty chocolate licorice, Tom's turtle advent calendar, the vintage food grocery box, remoulade, glob mix and much more. And why not wash it all down with a nice Allborg Jubileum Aquavit, Gammeldankstram, Blomberg Mulled Wine, Tuborg Classic and Gold Beer, Carlsberg Black Gold Beer and a soft drink for the kids. For worldwide deliveries, visit the website greatdanes.uk and get your order in today. There's also Lego of course, greatdanes, gr8danes.uk. Always drink responsibly. For T's and C's, please visit the website.